The text that we're going to read as we continue our Questioning Christianity series is Acts 17, starting at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new, is, this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around uh, and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship? And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would, that, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this, to every, of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. After that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is God's word. And if that text sounds familiar, that's because we read it last week. Uh, we've been going through a, uh, this text for two weeks because there is all sorts of great stuff for us to pull out as we think about how to engage a culture like ours. Uh, we remember we talked last week about Paul's method in reaching the Athenians, and we talked about the culture that he was speaking into, a culture very much like ours. So this week, we're going to focus on his message, what he actually says. And we're going to see that Paul is going to answer the four philosophical questions that every person has to answer. It's how we form what you might call a worldview. How do we take all the input that is coming into us and make sense of it? And those four questions are universal across all religions, all worldviews, all philosophies. They are, first of all, origin. How did I get here? Second, meaning. Why am I here? Third, morality. How should I live while I'm here? And fourth, destiny, where am I going when I'm done? The Apostle Paul is going to answer all four of those questions and hopefully show you that the Christian worldview, the Christian answers to all these questions are far superior than any other worldview. So today I hope to focus on his message and let those four questions and those four answers that he gives stand on their own and hopefully convince you as well. Paul starts his speech by saying this, 
People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. In the 6th century BC, uh, a man named Epimenides had an idea. There was a problem in Greece. There was a plague that was going across the entire empire and killing people left and right. And even though the Athenians had started to ramp up their sacrifices to all their gods, nothing was changing. And so Epimenides took a sheep and he said, I'm going to release this sheep and wherever it lies down, I'm going to slaughter it there to an unknown god because he thought, well, perhaps all these other gods that we're sacrificing to, they're not the ones bringing the plague. Maybe there's some other god we don't know about. And so he did just that. He let the sheep go. It lay down on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. He slaughtered it there and put up an altar that probably looked similar to this one. This is not the altar that was found in Athens at that time. This is from around Rome. But it turns out that across the empire, there were numerous altars to unknown gods. Now, Paul says this is their ignorance and yet worship at the same time. He says, you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship. Uh, as an aside, before we get into what he means by that, I think something eerily similar is happening in our culture today. Obviously, COVID-19 is not, is not equal to the plagues of the ancient world for a number of reasons, but we are experiencing something of a plague right now. And what are people doing? running to their gods, right? Some run to the gods of science. Say, science will save us. We trust in science. If we just make the right sacrifices, and by sacrifices they mean make sure everyone wears masks, or maybe they don't, or make sure we trust this doctor or that doctor. And yet, the answers aren't clear. The god of science doesn't seem to be answering well, or at least if he is answering, he seems to be confusing a lot of people. Some people are running to the god of politics. If only we can get this politician in power, then everything would be fine. He would deal with COVID-19 better. Or maybe if we can get that guy out, or maybe we can add this policy or take this away, then everything will be fixed. But, but across the world, even though some countries may be doing better than others, no one of them has figured it out. No policy has stopped this virus. Now, do I think that at the end of this, people are going to start thinking, you know, there's probably some stuff that's way out of our control here that we should be accountable to. I don't know. I hope so. But the point is, this is how humanity operates, right? When things go bad, we go to our gods. And in every situation, we find out that our gods can't live up to what we expect of them. And so we functionally live worshiping something else, even if we can't name it. That was Paul's point. You're ignorant of the very thing you worship. In other words, he says, you're living as if you're accountable to some God that you don't even know. You're operating in such a way that betrays that you are very religious people, even though you may not claim that for yourselves. So Paul says, this God that you don't know, I know him. And I'm going to show you how that God is far superior to any God that you've ever worshipped before. And he does that with those four philosophical questions, right? Um, so let's walk through those four philosophical questions. The first of those is origin. How did I get here? Uh, if you could just advance the slides for me, I'm having trouble controlling them.
Well, we'll get it figured out. I'll start going. Um, first of those is origin. Uh, the text says this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by humans' hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So Paul says you need a big God. You need a God who is the Lord of heaven and earth, who created all things. He says that this God that he is talking about does not live in temples made by human hands. Uh, which means that this God is not able to be manipulated by you. In fact, if you have a God who is manipulatable, you're probably thinking of yourself more as the God and not so much as having the God as the God. Uh, that God that you have is just a servant to you to serve your purposes rather than a God who can actually help you. He says if you have a God who you can contain, who you can understand, who you can change or, or m motivate to action, that's not a big enough God. People under the age of 40 have been told for their entire life, basically, that they are supposed to go out and make their own meaning in life. That they should dispense with the old notions of following what their family did. You know, if my daddy was a baker, I'll be a baker. If my dad was a cop, I'll be a cop. They've been told, go and find yourself. Go follow your dreams. Be whoever you want to be. And there's some value to that, of course. It's probably good that we've given people more opportunities, but the research says that that's not helping us all that much. I know I've said this before, but uh, the millennial and Gen Z generations, basically anyone under the age of 35, have higher levels of depression and anxiety than any generation before them. And some people might say, well, that's because the world is a worse place now. Right? We have all this political unrest and social unrest and the environment and money and jobs and, and housing and all these things that are more difficult for young people today than they were before. But I would challenge that and say, just look at the past 100 years and the things that have happened. In the past 100 years or so, we've had two world wars, a cold war, a couple great depressions, a number of moments of social unrest, a couple epidemics. Is 2020 bad? Yeah. Is it significantly worse than the last 100 years? Uh, maybe not so much. So what's the deal? <laughs> Why can't these younger people seem to deal with the problems that are relatively normal for the last 100 years of history? Well, I would submit to you it's be not because the challenges have changed, but the resources that those young people have to deal with those challenges have decreased. They have been told to go make life for themselves to trust in themselves, to, in a sense, be their own gods. And it's crushing them. With no direction in life and no trust that there is something bigger than them that is helping them through this dark world, they're left depressed and anxious and, in some cases, suicidal. But this is not just a Gen Z millennial problem. This is every one of our problems. If you're above the age of 35, you struggle with this too because you're probably worried about a number of things in your life right now. Maybe it's health, maybe it's finances, retirement, maybe it's what your kids are doing. You're worried about a number of things. And Paul would say the reason for that is because whatever you functionally worship is not big enough to deal with that problem. Whatever you actually trust in is not strong enough to deal with whatever you're worried about, and that's why you're worried about it. If you have a big God, 
A God who is the Lord of heaven and earth, who, as the text says, apportioned people's times in history and the boundaries of their lands. In other words, he looks at not just the mass of humanity, but each individual person and knows what they're about, knows where they're going, and knows why he put them in this place in the world at this time in the world's history. That kind of God is trustworthy. That kind of God can remind you that no matter what the problem is, no matter how big it seems, your God is bigger than that. So that's origin. Next, he talks about meaning. The text says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Paul says that if you're going to find true meaning in life, it's going to be when you reach out to the true God, and this is important, wrap up every aspect of your life into him. The way he says it is, in him we live and move and have our being, right? As I told the kids, if a man makes a boat, he makes that boat for a specific purpose. It's not to commute him to work, unless, of course, he lives on an island. He, puts, he builds it so that it can go in the water, but there's one last thing he has to do if he wants that boat to function. That's put a place for himself to captain the ship. A boat is an impressive thing, but if it's not in the water or doesn't have a captain, it's basically taking up space. Human beings are the same. Uh, we've been created by a creator for a specific purpose. And that creator put a space for himself in every one of us so that in the right context with his guidance in him, we live and move and have our being, we would live out all the potentialities that he has for humankind. See, origin and meaning, they're intrinsically tied together. You have to know who made you and why they made you in order to know what you're doing, right? In order to know whether you should go on the road or in the water or in the air, you have to know if you were built to be a car, a boat, or a plane. And so if you don't know where your origin is from, it's really hard to figure out where your, what your meaning is. So Paul says, if you have the God who is the Lord of heaven and earth, who appointed your boundaries and your times in this life, then you can know that that God has a purpose for you. Now, of course, most people don't live like that. Uh, to borrow my analogy, they live in one of two ways. They live either as a boat with no captain or not a boat at all. Uh, people who live as a boat with no captain are those who would live according to Christian principles, but with no God in the captain's seat. In other words, they might be faithful to their spouse, and they might not cheat people out of money, and they might be generally pleasant to be around, but they're not doing it from a love for God. They're doing it because, well, it's extrinsic motivation. And you know what extrinsic motivation is? It's the idea that you do something because something outside of you will benefit you. This is the idea of like, if you go to work and you only go to work because you like to get paid, that's extrinsic motivation. This is in contrast to intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation is you go to work because you love your job and you do it whether they paid you or not. See, people who act as a boat without a captain are motivated by extrinsic motivation. 
And and a sociologist named Tim Kasser did a a repeated study on the connection between extrinsic motivation and people's mood. And he found that extrinsic motivation actually leads to lower levels of mood across the board, regardless of age or background or ethnicity or gender, any of these things. He said, if you are mostly extrinsically motivated, you will live at a lower level of mood than someone who is mostly intrinsically motivated. Makes sense, right? In him, we live and move and have our being. God made us not to live in order to get something from the world, but to live out of the love that he has already purposed us with. The love that he showed to us and expects us to have flow out from us. We were built that way. On the other hand, you have people who live as if they're not a boat at all. People who would say, I don't care what I'm made to do. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And it might be easy to think about things like identity formation and that sort of stuff, but this is really just a lifestyle of saying, I'm going to do me. I don't care if I was made to be a boat. I kind of feel like being a car today. These are the people who generally will just live their lives without thinking about their lives. They'll live their lives with contrary uh, philosophical assumptions, kind of like the ones I talked about last week. Like, for example, that you can't believe in evolution and also believe in the idea of universal human rights. They'll just believe those things because it doesn't matter to them what they are or what they were made for. They just live the way they feel. But Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. We're built to be something. Built to be something that is captained. And we need that captain in order to fulfill our purpose. That purpose that God gave us is to love God and to love our neighbor. To see that love that he has given for us in Jesus Christ on the cross and then have that same kind of sacrificial love flow to other people. And you will find amazing joy and freedom if that's the way that you live. The third question he takes on is morality. How should I live while I'm here? Uh, Paul says it like this. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this, of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Uh, so the section on morality, the uh, Apostle Paul is answering what would be the kind of assumed Uh, question that the Areopagus would have been asking at that point in his speech. Uh, They would have thought to themselves, okay, so if there is an all-powerful creator God who is in charge of everything, and he purposed us for certain things, and it's pretty obvious we're not living according to that purpose, their next assumption would be, well, then he would be vindictive. He would bring down a plague or a pestilence or a punishment of some sort that would show us that we're not living according to his purpose. The Apostle Paul says, That's what all your gods are like. That's what all your human-created gods are like because that's the only way humans can think to operate, vindictively. But this God that I'm speaking to you about is a gracious God, a God who is patient and calls people to repentance. Repentance is the start of Christian morality. Our life, as we live it, is full of things that are repulsive to God. Our worship of ourselves, our worship of all our very two small gods, is just offensive to him. But the beauty of the God of the Bible is that he is a gracious God, who instead of being vindictive against our sin, instead of giving us his full wrath, gives us the chance to repent of those sins and be forgiven for them. That's what Paul calls us to. He says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And that makes all the difference. There is a day that is coming when Jesus is going to come back 
And when he, if when he comes back, you are not repentant, you will go to hell. But if you are repentant, if you're willing to admit your sin and look to Jesus for salvation, you'll be saved on that day. But now if you're paying attention, you'll think to yourself probably, that sure doesn't sound like what I think of when I think of morality. Right? Morality is supposed to be like doing good things and not doing bad things, right? Well, yeah, that is part of it, but it is not the centerpiece of Christian morality, which is probably grating on some people's ears because they've thought to themselves for maybe their whole life, Christianity is about being a good person. It's not necessarily. Let me illustrate it to you like this. If, if you were to take uh, the whole Bible and break down every single Bible verse into different categories, one of those categories being universal commands for all people on how to behave. What percentage of the Bible do you think would fit into that category? Just think of a number in your brain right now. The answer is less than 1%. Less than 1% are universal commands for all people about how to behave. Now, I'm sure you're thinking of some. Your brains are running to them right now, and that's true. They're in there. But to see those commands as what it means to be a Christian is to miss the point. If you start a new job and your manager comes to you and hands you a manual and says, this big, thick book has all the rules, just read it, memorize it, make sure you follow everything in it, and you'll be just fine. That might be a pretty decently easy job to succeed at, right? But you're also a cog in the wheel. You're just a warm body taking up space. But let's say you join another job, and at that job, instead of giving you a manual, the manager sits you down, tells you the story of the company, the core values that got them to be as successful as they are, and then hands you a laminated sheet with five core values and says, uh, things change around here quite a bit, so what we want you to do is just live by these core values. Well, suddenly you're not a warm body. You're part of the community. You're part of the team. You, you have ownership. You're, you're in this thing. You're not easily replaceable. Which of those is more like God? When he hands you the manual, is it a book of how-tos, do's and do-nots, or is it the story of how we got to this point? The story of what he was willing to do for us. I would contend that's what exactly what the Bible is. It is stories about God, and it is teaching about God, and it's poems and wisdom about God, because the story is not about you and how you're going to be a better person, but about how God was good to you and saved you from your evil. And so he calls you to repent. And that's important for Christians and non-Christians alike. Entrance into the Christian faith is repentance. Willing to say, I'm sinful and I trust Jesus for my salvation. But for Christians, that is a daily practice. Every day, every one of us ought to wake up and repent and say, God, I am not worthy to be awake this morning. Yet you are gracious and you will save me forever. That's why we do it at the beginning of our worship services, right? Every single worship, we confess our sins. We repent. Because that is the start of Christian morality. And what that does is create a unique community. Every other community on the face of the earth is about the rules. Be this, do this, say this at the right times to the right people, and you will be part of us. But Christianity says, no, it is all about Jesus doing for, doing for us. And therefore, I cannot look down on any one of you, neither can you look down on me, but we can all look up to Jesus for our salvation. So that's morality. Then destiny. 
Apostle Paul says it like this, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Dr. Michael Chandler did a series of studies on First Nations teens in British Columbia. Um, Many of you know, First Nations folks tend to struggle with suicide more than people who aren't part of the First Nations. And so Dr. Chandler's research was to find out why is this? Why is it it that more First Nations people tend to commit suicide? And, And what he found in studying those teens is that there was a direct correlation between what they believed was possible in the next 20 years of their life and whether or not they were going to commit suicide. In other words, if those teens could look at the next 20 years of their life and have a general idea of where they were going and what would probably happen, they were far more peaceful, far more secure. But if they had no idea, if they weren't sure what they would do for work, if they weren't sure where they would live, if they weren't sure who would be around, they were far more likely to commit suicide. What does that teach us? That if you don't have a rock-solid answer to the question of destiny, it's going to destroy you from the inside out. Here's what the Bible teaches. It teaches that despite our sin, Jesus died for us and then rose again in a historically verifiable event in order to prove to us that we have a rock-solid future of our own resurrection when we die. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. He said he has given proof of this. What's proof? It's testable evidence, right? You can't really prove a philosophy wrong. It's just a set of ideas that maybe don't work for you or maybe do work for you. But when you have historically verifiable events, you can find out whether these things really happened or not. And that's exactly what the Christian faith presents to you. Proof. Test it. And you'll find certainty that is rock solid. Now, I talk about this just about every week, and that's on purpose, because the resurrection is the centerpiece of our faith. The Apostle Paul says, if the resurrection isn't true, the whole Christian faith is awash. But if it is true, then it is the only truth. Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. God gave us proof through that resurrection. I know that uh, most of you know that the cross is the the, uh, main symbol that the church uses, the Christian church uses. And I guess most of you, or maybe, maybe just some of you, would know that the second most popular symbol of the Christian church is the fish. You know that symbol, right? Um, by the way, just as a tangent, the reason the fish is the second most popular uh, is the, the words Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior, in Greek, create an acronym that just spells out the word ichthus in Greek, which is just the word for fish. That's why we use that symbol. Um, but I'm guessing probably none of you know the third most popular Christian symbol. I'm sure I actually know that I didn't uh, until I studied this week. It's an anchor. Our sister church in Scarborough, Hope, uses an anchor as their logo. Can you think of why an anchor would be an appropriate Christian symbol? What does an anchor do? It goes down into a place where you can't see to something rock solid that you could not reach otherwise in order to keep you stable. Now, if if you're on a boat and you weigh anchor, or lower lower your anchor, excuse me, is your boat going to stay in the exact same place? No, it'll still list and sway and drift a little bit, but that anchor will make sure that it never goes too far from where you need it to be. Same thing is true with the Christian faith, with the resurrection of Jesus. 
Your anchor, your faith goes to a place that you can't see but is rock solid and holds you in place. Even though your life may not look always stable, it keeps you close to what you need to be close to in order to see your rock solid destiny. And this works. It was an amazing, amazing experiment I read about this week uh, between the Canadian and Manitoban governments in the 1970s. Maybe some of you who were alive back then remember this. Uh, in a little town called Dauphin, Manitoba, there was a program started that was essentially universal basic income. You know, universal basic income. If you're part of a city or a township or whatever it is, the country, um, you get a subsidy from your government every month or every year just for being there. The idea being that if people have their basic needs already certainly taken care of, they will use their time and their energy and their work and their money to do more productive things than just scurrying around trying to get their bills paid. So they tried this for five years at the end of uh, Pierre Trudeau's time as prime minister. And you know what the results were? Pregnancies were healthier because women didn't have to work while they were pregnant. Kids stayed in school longer because they didn't feel the pressure to get out of school and start working. And finally, even though there were fewer hours that were worked across the entire workforce, those hours were generally reallocated to spending time with children which allowed a whole bunch of other benefits from just having healthy children in the community. Now, I'm not advocating UBI. There are a whole bunch of political issues with UBI, and that's for your own debate at your own time. But here's what I am saying. When people feel that their basic needs are taken care of, it generally leads to a more healthy life. But you have something better than a UBI program. Do you know why the UBI program in Dauphin, Manitoba stopped? Because the governments of Manitoba and Canada changed power. Something as inconsistent or unpredictable as a vote changed the whole thing. But you have something more rock solid than that. You have the proof that Jesus rose from the dead. That your destiny is secure. That your anchor is in rock. Because of that, you can live a life knowing that you may not have all the money that you want you may not have the lifestyle that you want. You may not have the happiness that you think you deserve, but you have something that is far greater and far more certain. So that's it. That's his message. Four points from the greatest church planter probably in the history of the world. And everyone came to faith, right? <laughs> no. Uh, they didn't. The text reads this way. It says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered and said, uh, some of them sneered, excuse me, and others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. After that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So you have a mixed bag of reactions, don't you? Some sneer, some say, I'd hear more about that, and some believe. Remember we said at the beginning of last week that this sermon is supposed to be juxtaposed with Acts 2. You remember Acts 2, Pentecost, the Apostle Peter preaches, and what happens? 3,000 get added to their number that day. Paul stands up in the Areopagus and preaches, maybe 10? See, those numbers are attractive, right? And the kind of numbers that we often want to have. We want to see lots of people in church, lots of people coming to our classes or at our events. And you can do that in an Acts 2 culture. But in an Acts 17 culture, outreach is not flashy. It's not always easy. 
The results aren't usually spectacular, but here's what we can know. It works. Right? A member of the Areopagus, Dionysius, comes to faith. A number of others come to faith. Even in this highly secular, pluralistic, uh, basically anti-religion culture. It works. It can work. And so we preach. We tell the message. We trust the Holy Spirit to work faith in people's hearts. Uh, but there's one more thing I, I want you to notice. And that's those two people who are named. Dionysius and Damaris. It's always interesting when the Bible names specific people, especially specific people who aren't totally tied into the plot line, right? Like, why does the Bible do that? I'm convinced it's almost always very intentional. I think one purpose of putting these two people's names into this document that the, uh, the author Luke uh, wrote for us is, first of all, verification, right? If somebody read this document within a generation of him writing, they could probably go meet Dionysius or Damaris, or at least some people who knew them and say, did this really happen? Is this really what he said? And they could verify it. Um, but I think there's a second reason, and that's because these people matter. Uh, when you look at big numbers, it's easy to forget individuals, isn't it? 3,000 people were added to the number that day. But you forget those were all individuals. You compare 10 or so who came to faith from Paul and 3,000 that came to faith from Peter and you, you say, well, one of those is better than the other. Maybe statistically, but not personally. For Dionysius and Damaris, this message meant everything for them. It changed their entire world. And actually, it changed the world around them too. Church history tells us that Dionysius and Damaris were two people who started to use their homes as outposts for the church in Athens. What if we would see our mission work that way? About individuals. Not about creating big things for lots of people to see, but creating small things for one person to see at a time. You know, lately we've had a couple people become part of our church. They've stood up here and promised that they're going to be faithful to our congregation. It's not impressive. It's one person at a time or so. But for those people, it means everything. And so instead of thinking about how we're going to reach the entire city of Mississauga or the entire province of Ontario, let's think about how we're going to minister to the individuals in our own lives. How can this TED Talk that Paul gives us teach us how to talk thoughtfully about our faith with other people so that they can come to faith? It's hard work. It's not always exciting, but it can mean everything for those individuals who hear the message. And that starts by, first of all, seeing each other as individuals. It's easy in a church to come here for one hour and think about all the other people sitting in all the other green chairs. It's just the other human bodies that are here for the hour that I'm here while I get my spiritual commodities. If that's how you see church, to come here and just listen to me preach for a while, like I'm glad you're here, but you're missing the full potential of what it means to be a church. A church is a group but they are also individuals. And as we learn to love each other individually for all of our faults and flaws, graciously forgiving each other like we have graciously been forgiven by God, we will grow a community that is attractive to individuals because they'll come in here and they'll say, what this group has, the individual love they have for each other, that's what I want to be part of. So pair that message with that kind of action. And we will see God's work being done among us. I pray for that. I pray for you. Let's go to God now.
Holy Spirit, you gave the Apostle Paul the words to say to his culture. We ask that you would give us the words to say to our culture. To be clear, concise, accurate, full of grace and truth and love for the people that are in our lives. Divorce us from the idea that being a church is about putting on a great presentation or about being a force in the community. And help us understand that being a Christian is first and foremost about just speaking your words. Speaking them to ourselves, speaking them to our families, speaking them to the people that we know. We trust that your power will lead people to believe. And though it may not be flashy, we trust that that will happen over years, decades, and amazing things will happen for those individuals. We pray for those who you know will come to this church someday, that you would bring them to us soon so that we can share that love with them. We ask it in your name. Amen.